Welcome to Brightcast by Shipbright. This is a re-recording of a previous episode, and I've learned that there are some things uh, that are in previous episodes that have prevented the uh, podcast from being distributed to other platforms like uh, iTunes or Google Podcasts. Uh, so I've gone back working. Uh, thank you very much to Anchor FM uh, customer support. They've been fabulous. Uh, so I've done some re-recording and I am now republishing it. So if you've heard this before, you can go ahead and gloss over it if you want. And if this is the first time that you've heard this because I'm now on a different platform, welcome aboard. Really great you're here. If you like the uh, podcast, please tell your friends. And uh, I'm really appreciative that you're here. We were huddled in the cabin of the Unimog, which is a Mercedes-Benz truck that looks a lot like an Army uh, troop transport carrier. We are huddled there, the four of us, uh, because I had badly injured my foot while trying to make a rescue fire. It was dusk on the Serengeti, and when you're on the equator, the sun rises and falls very quickly. It's then when we saw the lions come over the knoll. It was 1977, and we were staying at a tented hunting camp uh, down near the Tanzanian border in the Maasai Mara. And the Maasai Mara is part of the Serengeti Plains. And the Serengeti covers about 11.5 thousand square miles of sweeping vistas that you think about on a safari. And the owner of the tent camp was a burly Englishman who looked like something out of a Hollywood movie. He had the jaunty hat, the big beard, the khaki jacket, the rifle slung over, devil may care attitude. He was, he was almost too much to be believed at first, but he was very capable. And we had been out the day before we found ourselves in our predicament. We were looking at Rhino. We found this pride of lion. And it was a very large pride of lion with many cubs and some lionesses. The hunter's son was visiting from England. He was on holiday and he was going to drive the Unimog with Kasim, who was our driver, as guide. Kasim was a tall, thin Ethiopian gentleman uh, who I became good friends with. Uh, he was very good at what he does and I had a lot of faith in him. The morning we were to leave, Kasim had confided in me that he didn't have a lot of confidence in the kid who was in the young 20s with a I know everything and you don't know anything attitude, uh, which was particularly annoying, especially with the uh, experience somebody like Kasim had. At any rate, we jumped in the Unimog, which, as I said, is like a troop transport carrier with just green canvas sides and a green canvas cabin and glass for the windows in the windshield. And that's it. That's what keeps out the elements or anything else that might have tried to get in. So we were driving around and the kid got us stuck in a seep at the base of this rocky knoll where the water had come to the surface. And his way of getting us out of it was to just gun the engine and he took it right down to the axles. And there we were. We were stuck. So Kasim and the kid decided that they were going to have to walk back over the open plains to a game camp we had seen about five miles back on one of the local rivers. Now, in addition to keeping your eye out for anything that may want to eat you on the plains, this was 1977, as I said, and there was a lot going on in East Africa. And I'll get into that in a little bit. 
but you did not want to be down by the borders. There was a lot of tension, and the British, in fact, very quietly, had sent in troops to keep the peace and stop the raids that were going on along the border. So Kasim and the kid took off and started heading across the plain. We stuck by the Unimog, looking around, knowing that the rescue team would come any moment. We did not have any radios. Of course, there were cell towers back then. We were out in the middle of nowhere. No way to get in touch with people. As the day went on, hours went by, it started getting towards dusk, and we realized that we may be here by the time darkness sets in. So we scavenged around for sticks and brush and wood to create a a signal fire. There weren't a lot of trees around, and what wood was there was extremely gnarly and naughty. Not naughty, but naughty. Uh, so I had grabbed a stick, fairly thick, and was breaking it up into pieces. And on one of the times I stamped my foot down, a piece of wood turned in to the inside of my left foot and went right through my hiking boot. And it was one of those very dull pains. The type you know, it's not good. So instinctively, I pulled it out. Maybe I should have left it in. I don't know, but I pulled it out. And for a second, it felt great to get that out. And then that's when I realized my boot was filling up. So blood doesn't usually bother me, but between the deep pain and the blood flow, I started getting really lightheaded. I guess you might call it starting to feel shocky. Whatever it was, I wasn't feeling great. So we moved ourselves into the cabin. And when I say we, it was uh, three other ladies and myself. One was Dancy. She was the daughter of the safari company owner who was home on holiday and was our guide uh, for the three and a half, four weeks we were in Kenya. Uh, the other two were friends of mine from Philadelphia. There was Pooh and Suzanne. And uh, we all huddled in uh, into the cabin. I had my foot up on the dashboard uh, trying to stem the flow of the blood. Uh, the women started getting into a spirited discussion about who might be menstruating because as I then learned, uh, we're told that lions can smell blood. Not with the acuity, say, of a shark, but they can smell blood in the air, which was not a good thing because I certainly had left a lot of blood outside in the grass. So as the sun started to set, the rocky knoll that was about 300 yards in front of us, uh, the top of it uh, with red rock outcroppings, uh, the sun, sun's light started to hit upon it and was beautiful. But that's when the first head popped up and then another head and another head and another head with the sun catching in their eyes. And suddenly all of these little cub heads and the lionesses appeared and the full pride showed up at the top of this rocky knoll with the big lion coming up with his beautiful mane and his size. And they all started sniffing the air. And that's when they caught sight of the Unimog. And they were all facing in our direction, sniffing. And then as if as one, they all started coming down the hill towards us. That is when we started to get really panicked about what are we going to do if they try to come in through the canvas? It's not a lot there between us and them. And if one of them figures it out, we're just, uh, it's like a chocolate. It's a little hard on the outside, but squishy on the inside. It was at that time, it was, again, something out of a movie. Because all of a sudden, we saw these lights start to dance on top of the rocks. 
and we realized it was the headlights of the rescue vehicles coming to get us. I've never felt such elation in my life. You know, the cavalry was coming. And they all came around, they pulled up, and the, uh, the camp owner was there and feeling jaunty. He said, oh, you know, no big deal. Because as I learned later, the, the kid had been downplaying uh, what our situation was. And then they realized how serious it was and that I was injured. And the kid was saying, oh, it's just a thorn probably. Well, I'd like to have strangled him at that point. But he started talking and then we were like saying, you, you do realize that the lions are like 50 yards right over there. And that's when he looked around, got his full attention, and he ushered everybody quickly into the Jeeps. I was in the back with my back against the tailgate. And then he turned around as if in an afterthought. He said, listen, if anybody sees a cub, let me know, because they're very curious and they'll come right up to the car. The problem is if a cub comes up, the lioness is right there with him and she's not as much fun. And I said, well, there's one right behind me five yards here. And that's when he just stepped on the accelerator and we took right off. We drove back over to the camp. I don't know how long that was, but it was a while. And when we got into the tent, uh, they were all saying, oh, it's just a thorn. It's okay. Until they took the boot off. And then they realized how big the injury was. And he just looked at me, stood up and said, well, you're going to Nairobi uh, tomorrow morning. The day we arrived at the tenant camp down on the Maasai Mara, uh, we were given a tour by the camp hosts, and we saw the cooking area where all the, uh, the help would uh, prepare your meals, and it was a beehive of activity. Uh, they showed us the, uh, the main tent where we took our meals. We would have our sundowners, or cocktails as we would say, mainly in the States, and then we were shown to our individual tenant camps, and they were pretty cool looking. They were green canvas, uh, kind of like sort of big army tents. Um, and the camp host that showed me my tent, uh, he said, listen, when you at night put some newspaper down so you can hear in case the scorpions are skiddling around uh, on the floor of your tent. And then in the morning, tap out your shoes to make sure nothing has taken up residence at night there. And oh, by the way, Last week, uh, in the acacia tree right outside the flap of your tent, a leopard had killed a baboon up there. So just take a look up to make sure he's not hanging up, hanging around up there. So I uh, went to bed, and I, I had been constipated, to be frank, for the last couple of days. Traveling, change of food, who knows. But uh, as sunrise came over the Maasai Mara, my eye flickered open, and I go, ooh. This may be the day. I felt movement. I was really happy. So I looked around. I didn't see anything skiddling around on newspapers. Hadn't heard anything. Tapped out my shoes. Nothing there. Got dressed. Poked my head out the tent flap. Looked to the left. Looked to the right. All good. Looked up in the acacia tree. Nothing there with eyes looking down at me, waiting for me. So I paddled on down to the outhouse tent, opening the flap very carefully to make sure there was nothing waiting for me in there. And uh, I sat down, only to feel that immediate sensation of disappointment. It wasn't going to happen. So as I took a big sigh, I heard what sounds like fingernails scraping across canvas. And I looked down to the little light area, about two inches uh, between the end of the canvas and the ground, where the light was coming through, and all of a sudden it just blacked out. And I could see the side 
of a huge snake. I don't know what kind it was. I don't know how big it was, but it was certainly blocking out the sun, and it was big. And it went on, and it went on and on. And by the way, I hate snakes. I'm sitting there with my eyes as big as dinner plates, holding my breath until finally, after what seemed like an eternity, the tail went by. I can only tell you that at that moment, from then on, I had no issues with constipation in Africa. This podcast is made possible by listener support and from sponsors like this one. This is just a quick insert of two footnotes to this episode after having gone back and listened to them a number of times. Uh, one is uh, the national beer of Kenya at that time was Tusker, not Tembo. Uh, so I apologize for that mistake. I also referenced that Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda were colonies of uh, the British Empire. They, they were former colonies at the time in 1977. They were independent sovereign nations, part of the Commonwealth, but independent sovereign nations. Uh, so I just want to make sure I got that clear. As I had said before, there was a lot going on in East Africa in 1977. The major item was that the East African community, or East African Union as we called it, was going through a very bitter divorce. And the East African Union was comprised of Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda that had formed an economic block of cooperation. They'd had things like uh, East African Airways uh, to help with tourism and uh, economic development as a small example. Well, the biggest issue uh, that the world was facing, and certainly East Africa was having to deal with, was Idi Amin, who was the butcher of Uganda. And Idi Amin had come to power in a coup d'etat in 1971. And he was ruthless. He was mercurial. He was uh, unstable. And... It, it, things just kept getting worse and worse under Amin. He kicked out uh, mainly the Indian community, which was the backbone of the Uganda economy since they owned most of the businesses there. Uh, he had waged these ethnic wars against some of the smaller tribes. Uh, and he was doing things like uh, when a airliner was hijacked by the PLO, on a flight from Tel Aviv to Paris, it was welcome to land in Kampala, Uganda. Uh, for those that haven't seen the movie Raid on Entebbe or read the book, it's a very good movie and it's a very good book, uh, but the Israelis were having none of it uh, since most of the people on the plane uh, were of Israeli uh, nationality. Uh, and they did a spectacular raid and uh, saved the hostages and gave Idi Amin a very embarrassing black eye. Uh, that just set him off even more. And in the spring of 1977, he had even detained some Americans under some uh, ridiculous guise. Well, the U.S. Navy, U.S. government, I should say, wasn't having anything of it and sent the Navy. And off of Mombasa, uh, the aircraft carrier Enterprise CV and 65, America's first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, 
stationed itself. And we were there in Nairobi. And I remember one day uh, standing on the balcony on the upper floors of the uh, Hotel Stanley. And uh, we watched a flyby of some of the F-14s you know, in formation. It was pretty cool to watch and they were doing their maneuvers. It was a show of force and it was sending a message to Amin that the US Navy is here and we're pissed. Let the Americans go. At one point near the end of the flyby and demonstration, I could see the squadron or the formation coming down there. The flaps were all out. It was almost like they were slowly descending down to Nairobi. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And all you saw was little smoke rings and they were gone. They'd hit their afterburners. Well, the people on the ground didn't know that. And they went nuts. It was a panic. It was a stampede. If the US Navy meant to send a message, they did that one to a T. So, and by the way, uh, a few days later, I mean, detain, uh, let release the uh, Americans. So this was, this was kind of the backdrop of what was going on. And Kenya had uh, impounded the East African Airway planes for non-payment by Uganda. And that pissed off the Tanzanians as well as the Ugandans. And there were cross-border incursions, raids, if you will, not necessarily you know, state-sponsored uh, uh, invasions, more uh, along the line of more criminal activity uh, that the local authorities were not paying attention to and letting happen. So very quietly, uh, the Brits, who the colonies of Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania were part of, sent uh, some forces there, as I say, very quietly, and deployed them along the border to keep the peace. Um, and that's why you didn't want to be down near the border because there were a lot of people with guns and a lot of them were really angry. On our way to the tent camp, we stopped in this little village town uh, down by the border to get gas. And it was quite eerie because there just didn't seem to be anybody around except for one person at the gas station. Uh, there was a troop transport truck parked under the shade in the corner of the, uh, the gas station. And uh, there was a, looks like guy in a military uh, outfit uh, behind the wheel. So I, I walked over just to say hi. And as I came parallel to the back of the lorry, all of a sudden it opened up and this soldier in camo, face paint, stuck his head out and said, get away from the lorry, mate. And uh, actually that sounded more Australian than anything, but it was a very thick British accent. And uh, he didn't have to tell me twice because uh, I went right back to the van uh, and was glad to be there. But uh, the, the troops were there, we saw them. So anyway, the morning of the of the snake episode, we went out on our game drive and we saw uh, lots of giraffe. We saw a lot of elephant. Uh, we got out, we walked around a little bit. I found a little uh, burrow that a hyena would use and usually I would step, you know, step away from it, but it didn't look like it had been used and I kind of poked my face around it and I could see a a jawbone there. It looked like it was of a baby giraffe. And uh, 
very quickly, I, I grabbed it and I got a tooth out of it that I then had a dentist uh, in Lewiston, Maine, where I went to college at Bates College, a local dentist, uh, polished it up for me. So I still have it to this day. At any rate, we watched the elephant and they're magnificent. And when you're upsetting them, they flap their ears, they trumpet. Uh, you know that they're getting upset. Uh, and especially if there are babies around and they are so cute, as you can well imagine. Uh, in Swahili, uh, the word for elephant is tembo. It's also the name of their Kenyan beer. And it's also slang for being drunk because apparently uh, elephants are fond of finding fruits that have fallen from trees that have been on the ground fermenting, eating a bunch of them, and then letting those sugary fruits ferment in their stomach, turn to alcohol, and then they get drunk and decide uh, they're gonna go streaking, and uh, usually through villages. So uh, it's a real issue when uh, the elephants are getting drunk and running around. Well, that afternoon, we hooked up with the owner of the tent camp, and he took us on a drive to go see some rhino. And driving around, and there up on top of this hill, we saw this uh, lone rhino, and the egrets, little thin white birds, were standing on its back. And for those of you who don't know, uh, rhinoceros have very poor eyesight, so they have a symbiotic relationship with the egrets, uh, who the rhino lets them stand on their back, pick at their teeth, uh, pick away at the parasites on their skin, and for that, the egrets provide the rhinos with the early warning system of their eyes. Uh, so it works out well in nature. So our guide, uh, the tent owner, he gets out and he goes, oh, it's a, it's a female. Uh, I don't know how he told, knew the difference, but he said, oh, it's a female. And he goes, uh, I'll give it a mating call and see if we can get her attention. So I'm going to recreate, to the best of my ability, the uh, rhino mating call of a male talking to a, trying to get the attention of a female. Uh, everyone should know how to do a rhino mating call. You never know when it's going to come in handy. And I'm sure for all you single men out there, uh, Get this one down and let her rip at the next uh, singles bar that you're at. I'm sure you'll get plenty of attention. Anyway, here we go. That's the best if I can remember. Well, it certainly worked because her head snapped right up. She looked down at us. You could just almost hear her say, it's a man. And then she started coming down the hill towards us. And the, our guide said, well, we, we better get in a Jeep because when she finally figures out that we're not a male rhino, she's gonna be annoyed with us. So we, we drove around slowly, getting out of her way. And she took off down through this little path through this grassy area and then through uh, a dirt road that was very short, but it connected to another big area of grassy savanna. So we followed right behind her, respectful distance, and uh, when we came out there, we, we hit gold. There were six or seven rhinos all kind of grazing around. It was magnificent. Now, this is the 1970s. I don't, hopefully they don't do this anymore, but our guide said, well, let me show you what they look like when they when they run because they're magnificent and they are incredibly fast for being incredibly big. And so he started kind of stampeding, chasing the rhino. And sure enough, they would get going 
It took them a bit to get going, but man, once they got going, they could cover some ground and you do not want to be in the way of a running rhino. It is a massive tank of an animal. So he was focused on the four or five that were right in front of us. And there's one off to the right, about 100 feet, 200 feet maybe. And uh, as we're coming up and I'm in the back of this Jeep and I look over and I could see the rhino suddenly take a look at us. And he took a look at me and then he lowered his head to the left and started running right at us. So I said to the guide, I said, we've got one coming in from the right. And he looked over and uh, he go, whoa. And uh, uh, veered off to the left and we kind of did a big U-turn and the rhino actually chased us for a little bit, but then he lost interest, uh, especially since we took off through this uh, path through the woods again, thinking of course, probably that we'll just go into another savanna, uh, uh, savanna area. We didn't. Uh, the short road path went right into a river and we went right into it. Uh, it was a pretty steep bank. I'm surprised none of us got hurt. Uh, fortunately, this time the uh, we had a radio, so the uh, camp owner could radio back to somebody who came and got us later, later on. We didn't have to wait around very much. Uh, little did we know that in the next day or so, waiting around was going to be a big issue for us. This is the end of episode one of Travels in Kenya. And just a note about this episode, uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, editing audio is not as easy as it seems. I often have a pen in my hand when I'm thinking, and I do that, and I didn't realize I kept doing that, so I apologize for that. And if you go back and hear episode one, and you hear that noise, I apologize also because you're not gonna be able to unhear it. So, Episode two, we're going to talk a little bit more about wildlife conservation in East Africa. We'll be going over to Kilimanjaro, up to northern Kenya, Samburu, Turkana, over to the Rift Valley up by Uganda, just to make it more interesting. And also things I've learned from baboons. And also you don't have to be the biggest creature on the plains to make the biggest impact.